Thank you, Rocky. That's a uh, song's always a blessing to remember. Reminds me of Psalm 107. It says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, and His mercy endureth forever. And the next verse says, Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. And we forget sometimes as the redeemed to sing the praises of God, and we need to be doing that. I want to ask you to turn with me tonight to 1 Timothy chapter 3, beginning at verse 14. 1 Timothy 3, beginning at verse 14. I guess my sermon title tonight is The Good News and the Bad News. Um, you heard about the fellow that went into the doctor, and the doctor says, I've got good news and bad news. And the guy says, well, give me the good news first. And the doctor says, you've got three days left to live. He says, well, if that's the good news, what's the bad news? My receptionist has been trying to get hold of you for two days. Uh, We have a software that uh, I go teach courses on very often. It's one of those pieces of software that if you install it out of the box and set it up, it's uh, you know, relatively complicated but not too bad, and you can get a lot of value out of it. But the, the thing in the software is that there's hundreds of things that the user can go in and change and change the way the software works. And, and uh, I was teaching a course to the U.S. Navy two weeks ago, and I told him, I said, you know, the great thing about this software is its flexibility. The bad thing about this software is its flexibility. And tonight there's good news and bad news in 1 Timothy 3, verses 14 through 16. So let me read those, and then after a word of prayer I'll tell you what the good news and the bad news is. This is the crux, by the way, of 1 Timothy. These are what, uh, if you're a Bible scholar, you would call these the key verses of the book. The whole book is about what's in these three verses. And it sums up why everything else is in the book. And I'm just going to ask if you'd stand for a moment in honor of God's Word tonight as we read 1 Timothy 3, 14 to 16. These things I write I unto you, hoping to come unto thee shortly. But if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. Let's pray. Father, you truly are holy, holy. The whole earth, Father, is full of your glory. The heavens declare your glory. The firmament shows your handiwork. Father, we want to praise you tonight with our lives. And we pray that you would open our hearts to becoming the people, to becoming the church that we ought to be to bring you the glory you so richly deserve. Father, thank you for always giving us better than we deserve. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. The good news is that the church is a family. I want you to look at uh, verse 15. He says, But if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house or household of God. And this is kind of an interesting word because the same Greek words used several other times. Let me point you to just a, a couple instances. Look back in the previous chapter at 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 4 through 5, where it's talking about the qualifications of a pastor. 
It says, one that ruleth well his own house, having his children in subjection with all gravity. So when it says his own house, it's not talking about the two-by-four studs and the insulation in the attic. It's talking about his family. It says he must rule well his own family, having his children in subjection with all gravity. For if a man know not how to rule his own house, that is his own family, how shall he take care of the church of God? So he says the church is like a family. Look over at 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 4. It's just across the page in my Bible. It's talking about uh, taking care of widows. And in 5.4 it says, If any widow have children or nephews, let them first learn to show piety at home, that's the same Greek word, and to requite their parents for that is good and acceptable in the, uh, before God. And then I look down at verse 8. It says, But if any provide not for his own, especially for those of his own house, the same word, and that, that means they're his own family. He says that person is basically worse than an infidel. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says, Consequently, you're no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of his house, that is, his family. And in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 11, it says, Both the one who makes men holy and those who are made holy are of the same family, so Jesus then is not ashamed to call them his brethren. You see, the fact of the matter is, we're family. The reason I can say that with all confidence is that Brother Henry and I and Brother Phil and I and Rocky and I have the same father. We all have God as our father, therefore we're part of the same family. And that's an important concept because it means that since we're part of the same family, we have folks who can love us and support us and come alongside us when we're hurting. I've been blessed in my own life with uh, the family that uh, I have that my brother and sister are always very supportive. And uh, uh, just this week, uh, we're still dealing with van problems. Don't let the fact the van's here fool you into thinking it's working, because it's not. Uh, but uh, I went to pick it up thinking it was working, and 30 minutes later had to go to the funeral of my former brother-in-law. And I went there because my nephew had flown in from Germany. He's a lieutenant colonel in the United States Air Force, and he was there, and my niece had flown down who's an actress, had flown down from New York, and they were there. My sister came to support them, and Judy and I went to support them as well because that's what family does. We support one another in the hard times. We love one another. We, we, we're there when others are hurting, and uh, that's, a, that's an important thing to do. You see, it, we may look a lot different and it's okay to look different in God's family. In Galatians chapter 3 it says, For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is therefore no Jew nor, nor Greek, neither slave nor free, male nor female. He says elsewhere there is no barbarian and no Scythian. Why? Because you are all one in Christ Jesus. That's the good news. We're family, despite of how different we may be, how different our backgrounds may be. The church's family, we have the same father. We are brothers and sisters. And in some way, we probably have some family resemblance, too. Every now and then, uh, I don't have to do this very often, but every now and then, I attempt to deny one of my children belongs to me. Did you all ever do that with any of your kids? Especially some of the jokes my son tells. He got his sense of humor from his mama. I want you to know that now. I'll public. <laughs> that wasn't the son I was talking about. Um, but you know, 
the fact of the matter is it's kind of hard for me to deny them because there's a little bit of family resemblance there. They're all cut out of the same mold. The same reason we, we might have some family resemblance too because hopefully morally and ethically and hopefully in terms of our doctrine, hopefully in terms of our belief, hopefully in terms of the goals that we're going together toward as a church that we're agreed that when we come together, we agree touching anything that we might ask so that it would be done for us by our Father, which is in heaven. That's, that's the plan. We are family. That's good news. It means we have someone that cares about us. And, of course, very few people have said it as well as the Gaither song that says it like this. I'm so glad I'm a part of the family of God. Join heirs with Jesus as we travel this side. And then it goes on. It says, you will notice we say brother and sister around here. It's because we're a family, and these are so near. When one has a heartache, we all share the tears and rejoice in each victory in this family so dear. From the door of an orphanage to the house of a king, no longer an outcast, a new song I sing. From rags into riches, from the weak to the strong, I'm not worthy to be here, but praise God, I belong. I'm so glad I'm a part of the family of God. Aren't you glad you belong? What a, what a blessing it is. So the good news is the church is like a family. The bad news is the church is like a family. Family doesn't always get along, do they? Family sometimes, uh, uh, you know, they grit your gourd and they rub your fur the wrong way, whatever expression you want to use. Sometimes we, we, uh, we have a sense of that. In fact, as someone has once said, families are like fudge. They're mostly sweet, but they've got some nuts among them. George Burns, uh, and some of you don't remember him as a comedian. Every time I keep wanting to say goodnight, Gracie. But uh, George Burns said it this way. He said, happiness is having a large, loving, caring, close-knit family that lives in another city. <laughs> and that's the way sometimes families are. And sometimes it is that way. Somebody once said, well, you remember when Winston Churchill said at the beginning of World War II, we shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and the streets. We shall fight in the hills. And somebody said, that sounds like my family vacation. <laughs> Sometimes we, we have problems getting along. And you know what? I, I, I hope... <laughs> I, I don't know, I get, I get frustrated sometimes because sometimes I think, you know, if I could crack people's skulls open and stick the idea in, it would be so much easier. And, and I, I hope you'll hear this. But this Bible that we, we come together to study and that we listen to Brother Henry preach, it's not, it's not just a religious book. It's not just a text. It's not just something for Sundays. It's the final rule and authority and practice for everything in our lives. And one of the things this Bible teaches me is that I'm to forgive others even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven me. And if I hold a grudge against a member of the family, uh, what I'm really saying is, God, my standards are higher than yours because you are infinitely holy. You infinitely hate sin in a way that I can't, and yet you could forgive me, but I can't forgive so-and-so because my standards are high. That's arrogance. That's why bitterness, the inability to forgive someone, bitterness is a sin. And if you're bitter towards someone, you need to confess it and say, Lord God, forgive me of the sin of bitterness. It's tearing apart marriages. It tears apart parents from their children. It tears apart churches. 
when we can't forgive, and we need to learn how to do that. The first thing we need to understand about God's church is that it's a family. That's the good news and the bad news. And we need to learn to forgive one another and love one another and support one another all the time anyway. Now I want you to notice it's also not only a family, but it says in verse 15, it's the church of the what, God? What was that word right before God? Living God. That's kind of an interesting word. It's not just the idea that God's alive, but, but it's the idea that, hey, you know what? If we're here serving a living God, a resurrected Savior, that ought to be just a little bit exciting. Now, I have not had the privilege that Brother Henry's had and Miss Linda's had of standing outside the empty tomb. But I can bet it was exciting. Because nobody else has an empty tomb. Buddha's still dead. Muhammad's still dead. Jesus didn't even have a chance to, to get used to the place before he rose again. What a blessing. That's exciting. It's a living God. I know that when we get up here and talk, a lot of times people don't respond. And I used to beat myself up as a pastor every Monday morning for all the people that didn't respond on Sunday until a dear friend told me one time it wasn't my job to make people respond. And it's the first time I ever realized that. But you know what is exciting is that Isaiah 55 says that God's Word doesn't go out and come back void. It always accomplishes some purpose. And I don't always get to see it as a pastor but somebody's going to hear something that's going to make a difference in their life, and sometimes it's not right away. God gave me the opportunity once to pastor the same church twice. There were two things that came out of that. Once I went, I went back to pastor the second time without praying, and I learned a very valuable lesson. Don't go anywhere without praying. But I also learned another valuable lesson. I would walk down the halls, and I could hear Sunday school teachers sometimes say, remember when Brother Roland was here the first time, and he taught us such and such? And I thought... In stark amazement, Brother Swelling, I didn't know they were listening. You see, God's Word it has a power all of its own. It doesn't have to be delivered by an eloquent preacher. It doesn't have to be uh, you know, couched in, in uh, politically correct terms. It doesn't have to be made to look pretty. It just has a power all of its own, and it will accomplish something, and that's exciting. Because every time we come here, we have an opportunity as a family to worship our Father. And every time we come here, we have an opportunity to, to study a word that ought to be able to change our lives. And it's a fabulous word. It's a word that will teach you how to have a great marriage. This Wednesday, Jitty will have put up with me for 26 years. Best 26 years of my life. My children are a blessing to me, not a curse, because we've learned some things from God's Word about it. But the reality is He can teach you how to be, have a satisfaction in life, to have a good job. It, it, I'm not saying everything's going to be rosy, but everything you need to know for life is in this book. God wrote all the important stuff down for us. And when it came to 1 Timothy 3, He says, I want to teach you how you ought to behave in the house of God. You know why? Because sometimes in families there are people who don't behave. 
And we need to give some behavior standards. And so throughout this book, we've already seen behavior standards. This is the way a pastor ought to behave. This is the way the deacon ought to behave. This is the way women ought to behave. This is the way men ought to behave. He says this is how you ought to behave yourself in the family, in the church, in the house of God. And he says, you know what, it's urgent. He says in verse 14, I really, the, I must communicate these things to you. I've got to give them to you. That's what he's really saying in verse 14. And he says, I, I want to come to you shortly. That's my preference. But I might not be able to. I may have to tarry a while. I may have to stay put where I'm at. So I'm writing this letter to you so that you'll get this whether or not I can come. That's how important it is. The church of the living God can't be a dead church. That's important too. It suggests that we ought to have excitement and power. Now look at the next thing he says. This is pretty interesting. He says, and great, without controversy, great is the mystery. How many of you are Greek students? Let me see your hand if you're a Greek student. Go ahead, Brother Henry. You, you used to know it anyway. <laughs> I, I did too, but I can look it up on computer. Actually, all of you know a Greek word. Uh, you know two Greek words. One of them is one that Rocky just sang a few moments ago. Hallelujah. That's a Greek word. So you know one Greek word. But do you know that you all know another Greek word? If something is really fantastic, outstanding, awesome, big, what's the Greek word we use to describe that? It is mega. Do you know that was a Greek word? When he says here, without controversy, great is the mystery, he's saying we have a mega mystery. We have a mega mystery on our hand called the gospel. In other words, we could never figure out all this stuff on our own. Let's face it, it's pretty confusing, isn't it? You've got to die before you can live. <laughs> that's, that's pretty unique. You've you got to give because that's the best way to receive a blessing from the Lord. Uh, it's, just, it's amazing. You were lost, now you're found. And Jesus is the one who came to look for you. And how does Jesus dying for me pay for my sins? That's, that's a mystery. That he took my whooping for me, not only mine, everybody else's too. And it was adequate because he was perfect in every way. It is a mega mystery. But what kind of mystery? It is the mega mystery, he says, of godliness. Now here's where we miss it as Christians so many times. We think that this is just theology to be theological about or it's just a Bible text to be taught in Sunday school or it's something we come and listen to on Sundays and as Charles prayed a while ago, that's not what it's really about. It is a mystery of godliness to be lived out Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, today and tomorrow. It's, it's an everyday gospel. And so it is, a, it is a mystery of godliness. That means to be have a devotion toward God and to treat others around you right too. And I wish I could convey how important it is for you to get the dust off this thing, but don't just read it. Put it into practice. Do what it tells you to do. That's the, that's the real significance. And then, verse 16 and Brother Phil, I'm sure, already knows this because they teach this in most music courses in seminary. But verse 16 was one of the first hymns of the early church. New Testament believers used to get together and sing verse 16 as a song. And I want you to notice it's got like six phrases in it. 
And, and I think they're kind of in sets of three, but just, just look at these, these, the first three here. It says that he was, the, talking about the Lord Jesus Christ, he was God manifest in the flesh. So he was revealed, that's what the word manifest means, he was revealed in the flesh, or he was manifest in flesh. You, there's a song in our hymnals that talks about uh, veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hell the incarnate deity. It's one of those Christmas songs we sing a lot. He was veiled in flesh. He, and, and this is a mystery. In Philippians chapter 2, he said that he emptied himself. It uses the word kenosis. He, he made himself empty so that he could live like a real man. In fact, it's Jesus who was the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who is God. He's the very God. He said to his disciples, No man knoweth the day nor the hour, even the Son of Man. Jesus, to become a total man, he needed to live in such a way that he didn't know when his own second coming was. So he voluntarily emptied himself of all that. He also emptied himself of a few other things. We talked about how much power Jesus had. And yet Jesus said during his earthly ministry, I can do nothing apart from my Father. He gave up his power to let the power of the Father work through him because in order for him to be our Savior, he had to be a man. Now he's still God. He never ceased being God, but he voluntarily laid aside some of his powers, voluntarily laid aside some of his knowledge. He humbled himself and became obedient in the fashion of a man, even obedient to the death of the cross. But he did it voluntarily. So he really does know what it's like to be one of us because he's been one of us. And that's a... Man, that's amazing. He was revealed in flesh. If you want to know what God is like, the best place in all of Scripture to go is Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Because if you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you see Jesus, and that's the very best revelation of what God is like. It says in Hebrews chapter 1 that God at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in times past unto the fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the world. He says he spoke to us by his Son. You want to know what God's like? Look at Jesus. He was revealed in flesh. And then look at this next one. Boy, this is interesting. Justified or vindicated might be another word. Justified in the Spirit. Now, Paul loved this word justified. In fact, as you look through Romans chapter 5, I don't know how many times you see it, but it's there a bunch. Justified means made right with God. Now, Jesus never needed to be made right with God, but what did he do? He was declared just by the Lord. Remember on that day that John the Baptist baptized Jesus, a dove came down and the voice of the Father could be heard saying, Behold, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. He's been declared just. He's perfect by me. Another time they see Moses and Elijah on the Mount of Transfiguration and Peter's about to go off at the mouth saying, Oh, we ought to build three tabernacles, one for you and one for Moses and Elijah. And suddenly God says, Shut up, Peter. This is my Son. Listen to him. In other words, I'm pleased with him. You ought, to, you ought to listen to what he has to say. And the ultimate declaration of Jesus' righteousness is found in Romans chapter 1 where it says that he was declared to be the Son of God in power by the resurrection of the dead. In other words, if Jesus died on the cross and didn't raise again, it would mean that there was a flaw in him. 
that something about his death wasn't good enough to pay for your sins or to pay for my sins, but the fact that there is an empty tomb that Brother Henry could go visit, that there's an empty tomb that any of you can still go see, proves that Jesus Christ was perfect and just and righteous. And in the book of Acts, in fact, it calls him the righteous one. It talks about the coming again of the righteous one and how important that 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 is. Acts 7.52 refers to that. Acts 3.14, Peter says, You disowned the holy and the righteous one. You see, the fact that he's revealed in flesh tells me what God is like. The fact that he has been justified in the Spirit means I can trust Jesus. He's reliable. See, the devil loves to come plant these little things in my head sometimes and say, Well, can you really trust that part of the Bible? Can you really trust that promise? Is what Jesus did for you really real? See, the devil loves to do that. He loves, he's the master of doubt and deception. But Jesus is holy and righteous. He can be trusted. And then look at this. Oh, I like this. In fact, as I was listening to that, that song Rocky was singing, I thought, man, this, Rocky must have known exactly what was he. He studied these verses before he picked this song. It says he was seen of angels. That word seen in Greek is the word that we get the English word eyeball from. It's where our word eyeball comes from this word. In other words, he was eyeballed of the angels. The angels have been watching the Son of God. They've been watching, they've been involved with him for a long time. They have eyeballed him. They were present, the Bible says in Luke chapter 1, when the birth of John the Baptist was proclaimed to Zacharias. Gabriel, who stands at the presence of God, was sent to bring the good news. The mission of John the Baptist was to make ready for the Lord a people prepared for him. And then Gabriel came to, pro to proclaim to Mary the whole deal about the virgin birth. And then an angel came and proclaimed his birth to Joseph and says, Don't put her away. God has done this, and his name's going to be called Emmanuel, God with us. It was, an, it was angels that made the announcement to the shepherds in the fields. It was angels who warned Joseph to flee for Egypt, to be protected from Herod. It was angels that told Joseph the coast was clear he could go back, but to go into Nazareth so he could fulfill the Old Testament prophecy saying that he shall be called a Nazarene. Uh, at the baptism of, the, of, of John, where he baptized the Lord Jesus Christ, it doesn't mention angels, but it says the heavens open, and I'm sure they could see into that. And in the agony in the garden that Jesus went through, it says that in the prayer, praying his prayers in Gethsemane, the angels, well, hey, well, let's go back to his temptation. His temptation after 40 days in the wilderness, the angels came and strengthened him. The angels strengthened him again in the garden. The only place you don't see the angels is there's none around at the cross. There's none around at the cross. In fact, it is the whole earth was full of darkness. And the Bible actually tells us in one place in the New Testament that God had the angels on a leash during the crucifixion. You've heard that song, He could have called 10,000 angels. He could have. He'd been well within His rights to do so. But the Father had Him on a leash so that Jesus could accomplish His purpose. At his ascension, at the resurrection, there's angels to tell the people coming to the tomb, he isn't here anymore. At his ascension, he goes up into heaven, and it's the angel that says, why stand you here looking up into heaven? In the same manner he's gone, he's going to come back. He's going to come back first to catch us up. He's going to come back to split the Mount of Olives wide open. 
And somebody's going to have to write down what happens in between because I won't be paying any attention. Rocky, I was thinking about an old song while you were singing a while ago. It's an old song. I don't even know if it's still in the hymnals anymore. It says this. Holy, holy, holy is what the angels sing. And I expect to help them make the courts of heaven ring. But when we sing redemption's story, they must fold their wings, for angels never felt the joy that salvation brings. The Bible tells me that angels desire to look into the things of God regarding salvation, but they can't understand it. Wow. You know, I think heaven, heaven's going to be such an amazing place. And I think a lot about what it's going to be like. And I don't know what your favorite part about heaven is. I, I think all of our favorite part will be that we're there with Jesus. That's going to be awesome. But I happen to think there's one other thing that will always be my favorite thing about heaven. See, a lot of times when people ask me how I am, I used to say fine until somebody told me what fine meant. Fine is abbreviation for frantic, irrational, neurotic, and emotional. So I've, I've tried to quit saying that because I don't want people to know how I really am. But you know, I can always say better than I deserve because what I deserved was the lake of fire. What I have is so much better. And it's all by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, I hope you're not just playing church tonight. That you really know Jesus. That you just mouth the words, but he, he's really your Lord. Because then you can go the rest of your life saying, I'm better than I deserve. Because of his love. That's just awesome. He's coming back. Do you notice what is supposed to happen in this next little triplet here in verse 16? After it describes Jesus unto us, he says that he's to be preached unto the Gentiles. You could also translate that equally well, be preached unto the nations. We need to preach them to the nations. Now I've got to admit something to you. I'm, you never would have guessed this probably don't know me that well, but and Judy would never tell you because she's too sweet. But I'm stubborn. I am. I've learned a lot of things the hard way. I remember when I was playing high school football, we were doing drills without helmets one day, and I knocked a guy 50 pounds heavier than me unconscious, took six guys to carry him back to the field house, and I did it with my head. <laughs> Coach Mize out in Slayton, Texas, the rest of the year, he never called me Robert, never called me Roland. He just would always refer to me as Hardhead. <laughs> that was my official sports name, Hardhead. And sometimes when somebody tells me something I, that I'm not used to, I have to think about it for a while. Brother Henry preached something about a year and a half ago that has stuck in my craw for a year and a half. Brother, I finally decided you were right. Because just because Brother Henry says it doesn't mean I don't need to double-check it. Same thing when I say something. But I, I want to point out these verses again because y'all remember that video he showed this morning? I heard a lot of people talking about it after church. 
we, we kind of knew. I, I knew what was coming. Did, did any of you know what was going to happen during that video? You just kind of knew it was going to happen, and, and you still jumped. Because, and, and you may not have been able to see that verse on the screen at the end, but it says, as lightning comes out from the east and shineth unto the west, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. It's going to happen that quick. It's boom, there it is. But I remember in that video, in the last few seconds, there was somebody that fell on their knees. But you know what? It's going to be too late. I didn't used to think this because nobody taught it until I heard Brother Henry preach it. But I studied and studied and studied. And 2 Thessalonians 3 means what it says. 2 Thessalonians 2. Look, look back there for just a minute. In case you forgot this sermon and it didn't stick in your craw for a year and a half like it did mine. 2 Thessalonians 2. It talks about the coming of the Antichrist in verses 9 and 10. But listen to verses 11 and 12. It says, For this cause God shall send them, the them is the people left here during the tribulation, who've already heard the gospel. She'll send them a strong delusion that they should believe a lie. Now listen to verse 12. This is so clear. I didn't like it when you told it to me, Brother Henry, but it was clear. That they all might be damned who believed not the truth, that is the truth of the gospel, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. They all, not just some of them, they all. You know what that means? It means that if you heard the gospel and you refuse it tonight, you might have another chance tomorrow, next day. But when is that lightning strike coming? When is it happening? Because a minute later, by this verse, because you didn't receive the gospel, it says you'll be damned. You won't have another chance to receive Christ. Those who haven't heard the gospel, there will be some get saved during the tribulation. There's 144,000 Jewish missionaries going to go through the world sharing the gospel, and there will be some that get saved. But if you heard the gospel and didn't respond, and you're here when the tribulation starts, you won't be one of them. It's taken me a long time to agree with Brother Henry, but he's right, because that's what the verse says that they all might be damned who believed not the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. They wanted to do things their own way. Well, I'm not going to receive Christ today because I've got plans. I'm going to do stuff my own way. That's for old people. And maybe I'll do it later. I'll, I'll get religious later. You going to have a later? If that's what you're banking on, you're a lot more of a gambler than I'll ever be. A lot more of one than you should be. See, we need to proclaim to the nations the gospel. He, it's what it means when it says preached unto the Gentiles. And then he says believed on in the world. What should we expect when we share Christ? We should expect that some will believe. Not everybody. But we need folks to believe and to receive the Lord Jesus Christ. And then that last thing says received up into glory. <laughs> That's my arrow. I don't know where yours is. That's mine. I'm going to be received up into glory. He's going to come back. Don't know when. 
but I'm, I'm going to go up to meet him the moment he's here. And that's going to be exciting. And I don't think it's going to be anything like we dream of. I've read writers that have tried to describe it and write novels, including it. I, I just don't think we can have a clue. I think that's one of those things that I have not seen, nor is ear heard, nor has it entered into the heart of man the things that God has prepared for them that love him. Because i got a feeling, you know, I, I think about how good it would be to see my dad again. I think how good it would be to see some of the deacons that I've preached their funeral services again, some of the preachers who I've buried I think how awesome it's going to be to see family again. But you know, i got a feeling I may be there a hundred years before I even get around to it. Because it's going to be so awesome just to see Jesus. And I, and I think we're going to hear him and, and we're going to feel like every, he's speaking to every one of us individually while we're there. And we'll all be experiencing the same thing at the same time because that's God. It's going to be incredible. So I'd ask you a question tonight, most important question. And that question is, in that flash, in that twinkling of an eye, in that lightning that shines from the east unto the west, in that single moment, will you be one of those received up into glory? Have you believed on them now in this world? If not, would you make tonight the night that you said, I'm driving a stake in the ground, I'm making sure of my salvation tonight. Would you do that? And Christians, if you're here and you know that you know that you know that you know that you're going to be there, my question to you is, are you letting other people know about them too? As Brother Phil comes to lead us in a song, would you stand please? I want to invite you to come to the altar just to talk to God and if you want to come up here and take the pastor's hand and ask him to pray with you, or if you want me to pray with you, I'll do that too. But would you just respond to the Lord tonight?